The last couple of weeks, we talked about this passage here in, um, well, if I could put it up there, that would help you, wouldn't it? We talked about this passage here in uh, the book of Romans in chapter 12 about not being conformed to this world, but being transformed. And I want to do kind of a takeoff on that this morning. We're not going to go back over very much of that except to set up what I want to say this morning, because there's a lot of things involved in the lesson today, and hope we can cover some of that. But here in Romans 12, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, we didn't do anything with the last part of that verse, and I'm not going to in the course of these couple of lessons on this. But we did talk about being not conformed to the world. And during that lesson a couple of weeks ago, that's kind of what spurred my thoughts on this lesson. I think I was I was pretty hard on the common culture, I'll call it today. I was pretty hard on the present culture that we live in. And I'm not going to apologize for that. I probably was mild compared to what should be said and what some of the prophets of God would have said about the way things are in our society today. And I don't mean to condemn those who are not part of that, and that being most likely those of us who are here today. But I don't think we should have any illusions about what's going on around us in our society. But I do want to clarify, hopefully today, a little bit more about our relationship to this world because I think we can all be left with the wrong impression perhaps about that as far as how we ought to act now that we see what things are like. But first, let's just briefly mention this: what's really going on in Christianity to become a Christian. And that is the renewing of our mind. He says you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what's at stake when you say, I want to become a Christian. Christian, even if you don't know it, what's at stake is you've said, I want to be different than I am. I want to change. I want to be transformed into something that I am not at present time. And that's made in the image of God in the true sense spiritually of that word. So so what does a transformed mind look like, as it were? Well, it's one that's saturated and controlled by the word of God, as you see from that passage there in Colossians. In other words, it looks like the mind of Christ. That's why he says here in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery or something to be held onto, grabbed, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. So the first, the hallmarks of a transformed mind is are one that is humbly obeying uh, the word of God and taking on the form of a bondservant to his own God, to God as he sees him. And therefore, he would be a servant of those around him. We also see then that the mind of Christ uh, involves putting off things and putting on things. These things we're to put off 
is the mindset of the common culture of men as it's always been, and it's exemplified in what we see around us today, that you put off all these, Paul says in Colossians 3, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and you have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Now, the, the popular thought in Protestant Christianity is that somehow the Holy Spirit does all this without much interaction from you. He's not telling the Holy Spirit to do anything here. He's telling you to do something. With the help of the Holy Spirit... And when the Holy Spirit through the Word comes into your heart, it begins to transform you so that you no longer want to do these things. And then as you try to not do these things, you have aid from the Holy Spirit to not do them in the form of understanding of God's mind. But this is this transformation is not going to take place automatically just because you become a Christian or say the sinner's prayer or even are baptized. This transformation will not take place Automatically, and I emphasize that a lot because I think it's important that people remember that. That's what's commonly, the impression is commonly given in Protestant Christianity. And so God said, he says in Colossians chapter 1, hurrying along, that the real aim of preaching the gospel as he was doing it, Paul was, is that is Christ in you the hope of glory. So him we preach, he says warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or mature in Christ Jesus. So the real point of all of this is that Christ ends up in you, transforming your mind and therefore transforming your actions. It becomes a lifelong, as it were, process that's involved in this. And that's why Paul then would warn them in Ephesians 4 that they should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, the rest of the Gentiles, in the futility of the... Now here, it's interesting to talk about common culture. Paul puts these Ephesians into the group of people called Gentiles, like the rest of the Gentiles, okay? But he also distinguishes them from the Gentiles by saying you can't act and walk like they do, like you used to do. They walk in the futility of their mind. All to have great swelling intellects, but the intellect comes to nothing because it's so futile that the processes of thought lead them, lead them nowhere into marrying their chandelier. That's where their process of thought leads them. And there's a story in the news about a woman who legally tried to marry her chandelier that she loved so much. This is not uncommon today. And people think like that. So this is, this is where it leads you. Having their understanding darkened. The simplest truths about humanity and behavior escape them, you see, because their understanding is darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in. Now, he doesn't, he's not using ignorance as an insult here. He's making a statement. Ignorance in real world means that you do not know. They simply do not know what they need to know. The common culture doesn't because of the blindness of their heart. They don't want to know, and their heart becomes blinded to the truth and they can't see it. They're stumbling around the dark. And that's why he tells them uh, that they're past feeling. They no longer have feelings of guilt or remorse or anything like that, ha- having given themselves over to the lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Not that they're unclean. They work this uncleanness with greediness more and more and more. There are people this very morning, if they're sober from Saturday night, 
uh, all across this country in the common culture, in the, in the bands and the acts and the shows and the movies people, they are trying to figure out what the next step is in pushing the envelope. That's what they're doing this morning. They're trying to figure out a way that they can make themselves stand out and push the envelope a little further. This is what it means to work uncleanness with greediness. It's not talking about the poor person who is just trying to struggle along, has become addicted to drugs, and does the same thing over and over and is destroying themselves. That's bad enough. But these people, these are the people that are in charge of where those people get their ideas from. And they do it with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, he says. This is not the life you learned in Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Now I sound angry about all that, and I'm not. I feel intense about it because I see the destruction that it reaps upon people. And from reading the Bible, even though I haven't experienced, I know the judgment of God that is coming upon this sort of thing. It is a fearful thing, the Bible says, to fall into the hands of the living God. We ought to be thinking, thinking, these people ought to be thinking about that, but of course they're not. And so this ruining of the mind then is putting off your former conduct, he says in Ephesians 4, 22, with the old man, which is growing worse and worse, it's stinking more and more, according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on this new man, which was created in Christ. There's something new that can be different. Now, I'll tell you this historically. Christianity, it took a few centuries, but Christianity completely subverted the Roman Empire, and more importantly, it subverted the gods of Greece and Rome. It undermined them because of the futility of the worship of those false gods, which only pandered to the lusts of the people. If you were of a, the way the foreign gods work, the pagan gods always have worked is this, whether it's in Mexico, South America, or whether it's in Africa, or whether it's in Rome and Greece, the way they've always worked is you make a god according to what you want, or you, or what you fear, and you worship that. And so if you found yourself a big, strong guy that uh, we would call today, you know, a gun nut or something like that. Sorry, I'm offending any of you gun nuts. You, you, you would, uh, you know, you, you, you subscribe to the, to the um, mercenary magazines and you're walking around armed to the hilt because you just can't wait to get in the fight. There are a few of these people around. You would worship Mars, the god of war. He's your kind of guy. Or maybe you got, maybe you're like Hank Williams Jr. Is he, is that too old of a reference for some of you people? Pretty old reference. There's a reason for that reference. His band is called Bocephus. A reference to the god of drinking. Bacchanalia, the party god. That's Hank Williams. So maybe you're just that party animal. And you want girls on your side and drinking all the time and me and my rowdy friends are having a party tonight. So maybe that, so you worship, you know, the Bacchus, the god of wine and party and merrymaking. Or maybe you're a lover boy and you worship Eros, the god of love. So this is how you pick your gods. He says, you Stop being deceived by those kind of deceitful lusts and you begin to be renewed in your own mind according to the image of Christ. That's the image, not the image of those gods. 
But, the, but Christianity destroyed that, those old gods because it called out of people in general something better than the worship of those gods. And, and we're going back into that kind of darkness now. And you put on a new man. So the transformed mind produces a transformed will, Albert Barnes says. This one is 1800s. A transformed mind produces a transformed will by which we become eager and able, with the Spirit's help, to lay aside our own plans and to trustingly accept God's, no matter what the cost. This continued yielding involves the strong desire to know God better and to comprehend and follow His purpose for our lives. Now, nothing is more opposite of the way most people try to live their lives than that. Okay? They're out to figure out how to get ahead and how to be happy in life, and they're going to do it whatever way they want. And most of those people probably aren't even awake this morning yet. But at least a lot of them aren't. The other group of them has already worshipped by going on a bicycle track around and getting sweaty this morning. They've done their worship. Too cynical. Oh, there's been articles out for years about the sacred, the sacredness of bicycle and jogging paths. And the sacredness of exercise to lead you to a more fulfilled mind and having the right, getting your mind reset. And you can do that with yoga and whatnot. That is not mentioned in these verses. Bicycling, jogging, yoga, meditation with music, none of that's mentioned in those verses how to transform your mind to the will of Christ. Those are all deceptions. Not that there's not some good in them. But what are we going to do about all that? Since we can't be conformed or should not be conformed to the present culture that we live in, ask Christians how should we live in relation to it. Francis Schaeffer, if I could recommend an old book to you, Francis Schaeffer in the 70s wrote a book called How Should We Shall We Then Live? He was a philosopher and a theologian uh, in Switzerland wrote some great books on the common culture that still still ring true today, even though it's fairly old by today's standards. How should we then live? And I started to call the sermon that, and I thought, now people think I'm preaching about Francis Schaeffer, if they even know. Well, let's think. I thought, I've been thinking about this. And you know what's funny? The more I looked into this, the more there is. The more stuff there is here, and the more directions to go. So I hope I can kind of summarize a few thoughts for you, but there's a lot in the New Testament about this relationship to the world. And some of it is, um, it's not what we expect. Let's start right here in John 17. Jesus is obviously alive. He's praying at, the, at what we call the Last Supper. And he's speaking of his disciples. And I think this truth would kind of follow the rest of his disciples. I have given them thy word, he says. And the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Why is the world going to hate us? Why does it hate Christianity now? True Christianity. Oh, there'll always be a place in the world for a watered down Hollywood kind of Christianity. Always a place for that. But the true disciples of Christ will always be hated. Because they're not of the world. I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from evil, from the evil. Now, the world here is the same idea of the present age, the present culture that's used in other places. is how it's defined. 
So he says they're in it, they're living in it, but I don't want them to be of it. And therefore, if they're not of it, they're going to be hated because of it. He goes on to say, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The truth of God, he says, the word, the idea of sanctification here in this context is to be set apart from the world. Not made into a saint, but as is often called that word, but to be made holy in the sense of taken from the world and set apart over here, different than the world. That's what's required to be a Christian. So those who, in the back of their mind somehow, that want to become a Christian because they think it's going to make them more popular, uh, make them get along in business better, make them be able to do this or that, make them get rich, they're completely misguided about the nature of Christianity. Now I want you to go to another passage, a more harsh passage. That one's harsh enough if you think about what the implications are, but let's go to the book of Jude at the other end of the New Testament. And here, this is a tremendous book written by, many believe, the half-brother of Jesus, like James. This is one of his other half-brothers, Jude. And it's a book about false teachers and falsehoods and the relationship of the world to Christians. And it says, But you, beloved, you remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time, who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. Mockers. These are men outside of Christ, I think, is one of the implications, who mock being Christians, who make fun of it, who mock God himself, like Christopher Hitchens. Like, who's the crippled guy? Stephen Hawking. I'm a crippled guy, but not this one, the other guy. The other crippled guy. I've told you there'd be mockers. These are sensual persons. Well, the, the late night, the late night comedians on TV, which I haven't watched in 30 years, something like that, but I read about what they say sometimes. Jimmy Kimmel and those guys, they're always mocking Christianity. Christians. These are sensual persons, he says, who cause divisions, having not, not having the spirit. What's sensual mean? It means governed by their breath. As an animal, the sensuous nature. The idea of an animal following its five senses. That's what it means. These are people that are only guided by their five senses and what they feel at the moment. Living by your feelings, as we've talked about many times. And what's it say about these sensual people? They don't have the spirit. We associate the spirit with feelings, but that's the wrong association in the Bible. The spirit is associated with the word. And feelings are associated with sensuality and sin against God, a different way of living. But he says, now look what he says. But you, beloved, verse 17 of Jude, you remember the words which were spoken before by the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you there would be mockers in the last time. And these are, oh, I say, sorry, I thought I was, I thought I moved on, but I realized I didn't. Verse 20, and you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto, unto eternal life. And on some, he says, have compassion, making a distinction. On others, but others save with fear, snatching or pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Think about that for a moment. Jude warns these people about these mockers who would come 
and they were dangerous people to the faith. Now, here's what he says. He says, some of these people, with some of these people, you have compassion. When you're dealing with the worldly people around you, your friends and neighbors, even those who uh, engage you on the Internet or social media, some of these people you can have compassion on and you can make a distinction with them. And we'll talk about what that means in a moment. You can make a distinction between them and some others. When you make a distinction, you, you separate things out. Not everybody is the same who opposes Christ. Not everybody who is uh, doing some sinful thing is the same. Not everybody who's drinking or using drugs is the same as everybody else who uses drugs. There's differences. Not, not everybody engaged in fornication or living with someone outside of marriage. Not everybody is the same. Not all homosexuals are the same in why they're doing what they're doing and what what you can do with them. You have to make a distinction. This is tough. Okay. But then he says on others, you save them if you can with fear. The word pulling here is not strong enough. This is the word to snatch away. It's... uh, uh, it's the word that's used up for the word rapture. We get the word rape from rapture. It's to snatch away. It's to grab somebody and snatch them away and, and hurt them. So at other times, when I was, uh, when I was SpongeBob, when I was a teenager working at Burger Chef, we had, uh, we were unique. We had uh, these chains that would go through and on, and you'd put the burgers and the buns on different chains and they would go through this big cooker. And uh, it was flames on either side, gas flames shooting out. And, of course, people get in a hurry. I still won't have much hair on my hand because I'd reach up in there and I would snatch those snatch those hot burgers out to make a sandwich because they were in a hurry. Reach up in the flame, snatch them out. You know, and if you do it right, you don't even have to touch them. <laughs> you, soon you can't feel it anyway. You can snatch them out of the flame. Most people look at, oh, I don't know, it's hot, I don't want to snatch them out of the flame. That's what he's talking about here. There are some people that you can have compassion with in dealing with them or against Christ. Other people, you need to fear them. And if you can help them, it's only going to be by snatching them away, if possible. And then you ha- he says about them, um, you have to hate even the garment defiled by the flesh. When you snatch them out of where they are, you're going to get yourself dirty. When you wrestle with a pig, you get dirty, muddy, right? It's the old joke. And I think they say, you know, uh, what's the one about the fool, about experience? Never argue with a fool. He's got more experience at it than you, and he'll you know, turn around and beat you with it. I don't know. There's something like that. I forgot the whole quote, but it's pretty funny if I could remember it. It's probably even funnier that I can't remember it and trying to make something up. But he says, hate the, even the garment defiled by the flesh. You might get yourself dirty, and so you need to be careful about that when you do this. Engaging with some people for any length of time will only hurt you. It, will, it, can, it can drag you down. Oh, the famous quote, I'm not sure who it's by. I, I heard it first through Winston Churchill, but I think he was quoting somebody else. That you gotta be careful with your enemies. 
Because engaging with your enemies can lead you to become like your enemies. I'm paraphrasing. And he was afraid that the English people, in fighting a menace like Adolf Hitler, would become like the Germans and cruel and heartless and, and aggressive. He was cautious about that. And that's the right, he had to engage them. But at least he was aware of the danger. That's what he's talking about here. So what does this mean? Making a distinction and have compassion. Well, I'll, I'll just give you an example. Maybe it's a poor example. I'll try to think of some. But in the scriptures in John chapter 4, Jesus meets this woman, a Samaritan. He's sitting by the well waiting for disciples to come back. He by the well and a woman, a Samaritan woman, who was considered unclean by the Jews, comes up to get water. And they have this conversation. And it's a little back and forth. She's apparently smart. She's surprised that Jesus talked to her for two reasons. Number one, because she's Samaritan. And secondly, because she's a woman. She, he's surprised. And of course, Jesus has no problem with either one of those things. He engaged her as a human being directly face to face. And they, they talked and went back and forth. And finally says, well, go call your husband. You, you want this living water? She says, I want the living water. You're talking about, I don't want to have to come here and get water every day. Uh, you give me this living water so I don't have to come anymore. He says, well, go call your husband and have him come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you are now with is not your husband. In that you have spoken truly. A woman of our times, a woman of the 21st century, she has no husband. She's had five husbands. Now she has none. But she's living with somebody. Sound from, like anybody you might know or feasible? Yes. That's this woman. Now people have tried to explain this way. But I think that's precisely what Jesus is saying to her. Go call your husband. He's trying to point out something here. You, you, you think that I'm here to offer you water to feed your family to drink for your family and animals to drink i'm trying to give you something better the living water and we're going to start right there where you need it and that's why have you had five husbands that are now living with somebody he wasn't saying this to shame her he was trying to say this is where i can help you and i think he knew that she was one on whom he could have compassion the Pharisees, Jesus had no compassion for. He attacked them and he insulted them and he, he tried, he tried to excoriate them in front of the people for their behavior. They had no hope of being, in his mind, they, they were to be feared, he said. This woman, he said, I can help if she wants to be helped. Because he knew that the reason that she was living like she was was not just because she was a worthless piece of trash. Because it's where life had pushed her and she didn't have any answer or any alternative to know what to do. That's what I think. And I think our society has a lot of these Samaritan women and Samaritan men in them. In, in it, I should say. That with compassion, you can show them that there's a better way to live. Now, some of these now, what I see in my lifetime, I see that there's that more of these women now, and, and I don't, I'm using a woman here only because that's who Jesus was dealing with, not because women are the only ones guilty of this. I'm, I'm talking about people like this Samaritan woman. They're much more antagonistic and defensive about this. They will defend this proposition. They will, they will, it's a point of pride with them. That's what brag about your abortion's all about, you see. There's a lot of those people out there. And it's becoming more so that we will defend 
this lifestyle and somehow come up with the fact that it's a good lifestyle to live. The one of the Samaritan woman here. But that's not where she was. And I know I have met on my lifetime plenty, plenty, plenty of people like this Samaritan woman who really want the gospel but don't know how to find it. They want something better than what they've had. Life has been hard to them and they've not known where to go because of, as the Bible says, because of the ignorance that is in them, the not knowing. They've ended up, and sometimes they have been deceived by youthful lust. They've been deceived by other people. And now they're looking back and saying, you know, I don't know how to get out of this, but I don't like where I'm at. And that neighbor of yours who may be living immorally, maybe doing things that are wrong, if you would approach them sometimes this way, like this Samaritan woman, with compassion, you'd find out that they really don't want to be where they are, and they're sorry they ended up like they are, but they don't know how to get out. And that's that's what we need to have more of in, in much of our relationship with the common culture. Now, this doesn't work when you're dealing with masses of people online. It doesn't work there. But with individuals, this will work. Make a distinction. Now, we need to spend more time on that, but I, I want to move on today. Maybe I'll do another whole lesson on this Samaritan woman. Gives me an example of people I've met like this. But I hope you can see how Jesus treated her that was different than he treated the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees weren't just religious people. In fact, many of them were not religious at all. They were just politicians. That's why Jesus was angry with them, because they were just politicians parading as religious people. Now, here's another one, have to have compassion. You know, here in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's addressing this issue of eating meat sacrificed idols, and it's a complicated issue, but I want to focus a little bit on one part and without misabusing, without abusing the context. Paul tells this Christian who's trying to live a good life and be an influence on his neighbors, and here's the problem. In the marketplaces where you went to buy your meat in these Greek cities here, these, the Corinthians were at, there would be little booths where they sold meat. And most of them signs had signs, this meat dedicated to Apollo, this meat dedicated to Dionysius or whatever. And so you bought the meat to serve your guests or to take home based on, you know, what not just whether it was a prime A cut or a sirloin, but you bought it based on sometimes the gods. Other people just went to the market and bought meat. If it looked good, they bought it. Now these Christians who had lived in that world came into Christ and they didn't know what to do about eating meat. Some of them said, since all this meat is offered to a god, I'm not eating any meat, I'm going to become a vegetarian. And they demanded that other people become vegetarians. That's always the way it is. You decide something you want to do, and the next step is to figure out how to make everybody else do the same thing you're doing. We got that going on in our broader culture today about this. And it doesn't end well. It doesn't end well in churches or societies. But anyway, other people said, I don't pay attention to that. Those are false gods. I don't care. I'm going to eat whatever I want. So they eat meat. They were, they were torn. So Paul here says, here's what the gospel says. He said, the, the meat's nothing. The gods are nothing. The meat is nothing. You can eat whatever you want. In truth, they could eat whatever they wanted. In truth. But their consciences were still having a problem. So he said, what, eat whatever is sold in the mar- meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. You can go to the market pick out some meat, take it home and eat it. You don't have to worry about where it came from. and you don't, Your conscience shouldn't be bothered by that. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, including this meat here. 
That's what you should say when you go to Publix or Winn-Dixie or Whole, Whole Paycheck Foods, wherever you go. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. That's what my brother calls it, Whole Paycheck Foods. If any of those who do, and he goes on to say, we have a lot of similar characteristics in our family. And if any of those, if any of those who do not believe invite you to a dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you asking no questions for conscience sake. That's always good advice. Don't say, yuck, what is this? Don't say that. <laughs> My kids used to say that. We take them to a, we were a guest at somebody's house. And, yeah, what's this? No, 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 no. That's not a question. You can go eat. So, he go, we'll come back. He says, but if anyone asks you, says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for the conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Now, what he's saying here is this. There's two reactions you can have to society, to those who aren't Christians. What you do depends on where they are and what the situation is. That's more complicated than what we might expect. If someone says, you sit down to eat a meal and someone says, doesn't say anything about it and you just eat, he says, just eat. He said, but if they make a point to tell you, knowing that you're a Christian, they say, you know, this was offered to an idol. Don't eat. Because he says they're testing you. And they need to see that you will not eat meat sacrificed to an idol as if, as if you were worshiping the idol. You will eat the meat sacrificed to an idol if it's just meat. Because it's the Lord's. But if they want to test you, be careful what you do. This is partly making a distinction too. And having compassion in the sense that we can treat our neighbors with respect. So my neighbor asked me to come over and eat breakfast with them. One morning, Christmas Eve, I think it was morning. New neighbors come over. We're having a little breakfast. I thought, Mom, I'm always up for pancakes and breakfast. So we get over there. We, he didn't tell us that everybody else is in their pajamas. All the other neighbors came in their pajamas. It was pajama party. So here we are, you know, dressed up nice. <laughs> so we already stood out real bad. And then they brought around the homemade eggnog making a point that it was homemade. They were already drinking cocktails at 10 o'clock in the morning, this crowd was. And they bring me, the, me and Judy the eggnog. What should I do? These are my new neighbors. I like them. They like me. Judy. I took the eggnog. I drank some of the eggnog. Oh, this is good. Said not a word about not drinking Judy wouldn't drink it. She's a better Christian than me. So I drank hers. <laughs> well, I didn't want the neighbors to be disappointed. I'm sort of teasing. I didn't say a word about any of that to them. I didn't say one word. Except when they, when they bring, they want to bring the martinis around. I said, no thanks. Uh, we don't, we don't really drink very much. Went on. Right or wrong? I'm not saying what I did was right. But I'm saying I was thinking about this scripture when it was happening. That's what I was thinking about. How do I apply this scripture in relating to my neighbors who aren't drunks and aren't trying to seduce me to do something wrong? They're just being who they are 
And in their mind, they're being friendly and neighborly. In their mind, that's what they're being, is generous and friendly and neighborly. That eggnog and all the drinks wasn't cheap, much less the breakfast they served. Should I throw it back in their face and insult them? I think you should be careful about that to a point. But now when they want you to come and sit and have a drink with them and enjoy the intoxicating effects of because they're always having parties over there that are basically about drinking. Well, I don't go to those. They don't ask me. But I don't go because that's something I can't partake in. It would just lead to problems. I'd rather keep the relationship better than that. So it's not always an easy thing to make that distinction. But we ought to make it. We ought to see that there is a distinction. And then we come to other issues. We only got, uh, uh, we'll see. Well, I'm on slide 18 of 38. I don't think this is going to work. So we're going to tackle one more little thing here. Part of the issue that we have is not just with individuals and friends. Maybe I should have broken it down to individuals and groups. But part of the issue is how do we treat politicians and other influential people? Influencers, they're called today. YouTube influencers. Are, no, that's not the one. Instagram influencers. <clears throat> but how do we treat these people and politicians? Are we allowed to say anything negative about a politician? According to some Christians I know, can't say anything negative about a politician. That's blasphemy. That's wrong to say anything negative about a politician. We're supposed to pray that they succeed. I don't believe that, as you well know. Look at this verse. Just an example. On that very day, this is Luke 13, that very day, Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. They were just testing him. They wanted to see what he thought about Herod. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, and tomorrow, the third day, I'll be perfected. And so forth. But he says, nevertheless, uh, it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. I'm going to die here, but not today. But I want you to notice what he calls Herod a fox. You think this was a compliment? Not in the least. This was a sla- this was a negative comment about Herod's character. Not only was he did he disagree with his policies, but his character was poor. That fox, and the word there that's used means to sly and deceitful. Go tell him what I said. If you, of course, this was a challenge to the Pharisees also. So, now, well, that, that, here's the answer to that. I'll give you the answer. Well, that's Jesus. He can do that, but you can't. Okay. Whatever. He's trying to, he's trying to show me something here. Now, did he go around just insulting Herod all the time, trying to start a fight with him? No. But he had no qualms about what the character of this politician was. And he had no qualms about saying so. Now, here's a quick example, then we're going to stop. This is from the Old Testament, though. I love this story. This is not Daniel, but it's in Daniel, but it's not Daniel. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And and they're called to fall down and worship before this great idol that Nebuchadnezzar set up. And he said, you know, if if you'll do this, Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 15 of Daniel 3, if you'll do this, well and good, if you'll worship and fall down. But if you don't, I'm going to throw you immediately into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? This This is the place where our government continues to go. 
It continues to go to the face of Christians and say, who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? All, not just in the United States, but all around the world. This is where civil governments are going. More and more. It's, now this is a change in my lifetime to change the last 10 years. But it's not a good place. And when they say to these men of God, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hand? And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego had a great answer, one that we should remember in our relationship to the world. They said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. This is above your pay grade, as Obama said. This is above your... Whether we should bow down and serve a foreign god or do something that's wrong or worship or whatever it may be, that's above your pay grade. You are Nebuchadnezzar, but the one who told us what we're going to do is somebody higher than you. And we have no need to give you an answer for this. That's pretty bold. Then they go on to say this. But if that's the case, if we don't bow down, then our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, even if he doesn't deliver us, let it be known to you, O king, that we... We do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you've set up. God can save us, and we think he will, but if he doesn't, we will not worship your image. Now, this is also where we have to be with the political authorities in our time. When they exert themselves to have more authority than Jesus Christ over Christian behavior, then they need to be told, let it be known unto you, O king, we will not serve this image that you've set up. And when they come to shut down churches because we do not practice gay marriage or whatever it may be, then this will have to be something like the response, I suppose. And and there will be plenty, 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 maybe the majority of Christians in denominations around the country will bow down and bow down to the image. What should we do? So that's the question. So, in any event, we'll pick up more of that next week. We, we've been, we really do need to stop, and there's more that needs to be said. And we haven't really got we haven't really got to the place where I was trying to go. Where I was trying to go this morning was where God tells us how to relate to our neighbors in a much better and more positive way, and how we're to view individuals. I get a little bit of that, but I think it's not right that we spend all of our time, and I'm guilty of this, of just criticizing the common culture. If, if what's left to us is an attitude that we don't like everybody around us, and we won't have anything to do with anybody who's not a Christian, that's the wrong impression to leave. And I may have done that, and if so, I want to correct that a little bit. But we do have to maintain a distinction between ourselves and the world as it ought to be, and a willingness to always stand for what's right. We can never back down from that. And, and that takes some time to discern. Well, we're going to close, uh, and we're going to sing in just a moment, number 645, uh, The Old Rugged Cross, as an encouragement song to you. Perhaps this morning you need to become a Christian, lay down your life for Christ, take up his cross and follow him, have your sins forgiven. Maybe you've got a burden that you need to get rid of. You can get rid of that burden by coming to the Lord and giving your life to Him, and He'll forgive you of wrong that you've committed. You come, confess His name, believing in Him, and and uh, or be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. If you want to do that, we can help you today. Everything is ready. And if perhaps this morning you'd like us to pray with you about a sin or some other problem, difficulty, come down to the front right now. Everything is ready, and we'll help you. Let's stand and sing.